Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Jason, just letting you know that Wrongful Conviction is going to take a short hiatus. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling will continue to drop every Monday. But after today, the next new episode of Wrongful Conviction with yours truly will drop on Thursday, April 13th. However, if you want to begin hearing new episodes one week early, you can subscribe to our feed through Apple+. Plus. All subscribers will hear new episodes of all of our podcasts ad-free one week before everybody else. So get in the know one week early with an Apple Plus subscription. Brian Narek and Roberta Smedley met in Plymouth, Indiana in 1994, and before long, they were inseparable. Two years later, they had a son, Michael Scott. But by the time the boy was almost three years old, the relationship had gone sour. Roberta kicked Brian out of the house, got a restraining order, and cleaned out his bank account. Eventually, a bitter custody battle ensued. In June of 2000, after the boy had returned from a visit with Brian, Roberta reported to police that Michael Scott had told her that he had been molested by his father. The Department of Child Services investigated the allegations. Brian's visitation rights were suspended, and Michael Scott was sent to play therapy. Three years later, at trial, Roberta and the therapist repeated the accusations against Brian. Michael Scott, now six years old, testified to say that his father had, in fact, done what his mother had alleged. Brian's only defense was to say that he loved his son and would never hurt him. Against the testimony of an impressionable child, three years' worth of notes and videotaped therapy sessions probably held nothing of interest to the jury. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's story comes to us from St. Joseph's County, Indiana, and it's about one of the most horrific things that anyone can imagine as a parent. And I'm speaking as a parent, but this would be horrific to any normal human person. I'm talking about the crime of child molestation. And the thing is, it never happened. 
It was a story cooked up as ammunition for a custody battle, and unfortunately an innocent child was used to bolster the charge by being groomed to testify against his own father. That's the real child abuse, by the way. Our guest today is Brian Nerick. Brian, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. And also with us is Cynthia Carter, Indiana criminal defense attorney and self-described recovering public defender who was Brian's post-conviction attorney. So, Cynthia, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Really great to be here. Brian, let's start with you. Where did you grow up? Right outside of South Bend, Indiana, a little town called Walkerton. It was just a small town. My family could have been considered lower middle class, good family structure, mom, dad, brother. And then around 1994, you started seeing Roberta Smedley. Where did you two meet? At the Blueberry Festival in Plymouth, Indiana. We were together, I think, six years overall. For the most part, it was always good. And a couple of years later, you found out that Roberta was pregnant. Were you excited about becoming a father? Yeah, it was great. I was looking forward to being a dad. You know, it's every boy's dream. I assume every boy's dream. It was mine. Through the pregnancy, I went to every one of the doctor meetings, birthing class, and I was there when he was born. It was the greatest thing ever in my life. So now you, Roberta, and your son, Michael Scott, are a family, and for all intents and purposes, it sounds like life was going pretty well for a while, right? I mean, you had a steady job, and we're building a life together. I was working in a machine shop as a machinist assembler and going to work every day, 10, 12-hour days, and coming home every night to my family. Michael Scott and I had a great relationship. I mean, I was always involved in his life. He was the center of my life. And one day I come home from work and she tells me, you've got to get out. And I said, what do you mean I got to get out? She says, well, I got a restraining order against you and you've got to move out. This just came out of the blue without any warning at all. Do you have any idea what that was all about? She just always got whatever she wanted. And, you know, she wanted a child and she got it and then got rid of me. So I ended up going out to my dad's and, and staying with him until I finally got an apartment. And well, my ex-girlfriend came back into my life and his life, and she just adored Michael Scott. Yeah, your girlfriend, Judy. So Michael Scott was around three years old at this point and living with his mother full time. But you and Roberta had worked out some kind of visitation agreement, right? I was there every Wednesday and every other weekend I had him. And we did everything we could together. We'd we'd fill the car up with balloons. I had a four-door Crown Victoria. And uh, we'd go down the road and roll the windows down, and the balloons would fly around and fly out. It was wonderful. Michael Scott loved being with me. I bought a a house. Judy and I moved into it. It was a nice two-story house. Michael Scott would come over. He had his own bedroom. He had a walk-in closet that, We were sitting there with markers and right all over the walls. Throw the ball up and down the steps. And like I said, I thought we had it going on. It was more stable than his house. You know, he would always say mom's going out drinking or mom was drunk. So around this time is when you decide to hire a lawyer, Greg Blanford, and push for full custody of your son. I wanted to have him with me. And I thought it was better for him to be with Judy and I. You know, I felt it was more safe. At one point, Roberta had sent my mom a picture of Michael Scott. And it was a picture of Michael Scott and his little buddy, Max. 
and they were both drinking a beer. So I presented that to the court. I think that's what flipped her switch to make up all these lies. And in June of 2000, that's when you find out just what kind of lies she'd be willing to make up. And then I come home from work one day, and Judy meets me at the door, and she says, get in the house. She says, there's a warrant for your arrest. And I said, for what? She says, they said that you did something to Michael Scott. Right. The police report was June 2nd, 2000. And the police talked to Roberta, and she reported that the child had reported that Brian was doing things to him and that he didn't like his father's pee-pee. And so I called my family attorney, the one that was working with me to get custody, and he says, they're allegating that you did something to Michael Scott sexually. And I said, that's impossible, Greg. It didn't happen. He says, well, this is what's happening. These are really serious allegations, of course. But initially, there was a wide gap between what Roberta alleged that Michael Scott had said and what Michael Scott was actually saying. So then I find out that what he's saying is doggy, dad, and grass. That's all he was saying. I mean, it was nothing. Everybody's just kind of laughing about this because they know Brian. They know this isn't possible. This was all craziness. When these kinds of allegations are leveled, Department of Children's Services, or DCS, must get involved by law. And there was a physical examination done, too. And they didn't notice any injury to the child, just some redness, and there was no internal examination done. But there were no injuries to Brian's son. Michael Scott was interviewed by a therapist at a child abuse investigation center called the Casey Center. They interviewed Michael Scott, and he says, my dad don't do nothing to me. I mean, this was on video. And they're trying to get him to say something. He's not saying anything. So these sessions were videotaped, but Brian's attorney never even reviewed them or presented them to the court during his trial. But this is what we know now. So it sounds like the allegations were not being made by the alleged victim, Michael Scott, but rather just coming from the mind of Roberta. Nevertheless, Brian's visitation rights were suspended and he wasn't allowed to see his son. Then in October 2000, they stopped the investigation because nothing had really come out of it. But it sounds like Roberta was still not anywhere near letting up with her story. It's interesting because the allegations actually evolved over time. When the mother first spoke to the police, she said she was wiping the child after he went to the bathroom. And the child supposedly said, don't put your finger there, that hurts. And then the things that Brian mentioned about daddy, dog, grass. So that's what led to the initial physical examination. Well, then come November of 2000, the allegation changed. Then the allegation was that he put his pee-pee in my mouth. So that was a totally different allegation than what was made in the first place. That went on for over a year, just those allegations. And then the other warrant came up that says, oh, we have enough. They went to grand jury. We have enough to try him criminally. During that year, unbeknownst to you, Michael Scott was being sent to this place called Holy Cross Counseling Center for play therapy once a week where they were basically feeding him the story that Roberta made up that his daddy had been touching him and doing things to him. Basically, let's call it what it was, brainwashing 
and indoctrinating this poor little child with all of these horrible lies about anal and oral sex. There absolutely was indoctrination that was going on. And the whole time that this play therapy, it wasn't just therapy therapy, it was play therapy. Brian was not allowed to see his son. The child was being groomed to testify against Brian. There was definitely some leading questions, and they even went so far as to give him a power badge and a policeman ring. And it was suggested that this was going to help him tell the truth. According to the notes, anyway, from the therapy, they even gave him bad guy spray to put on the windows. I think by the time the trial came around, he wasn't even calling his father dad anymore. He called him Brian. And... The expert witnesses that we used said that that was evidence of demonization of the person. But none of these notes from the quote-unquote play therapy and those videotapes that we mentioned earlier, none of that ever was brought up in the trial. The judge didn't know about them. The jury never heard about them. Why in the world is that? The public defender that handled Brian's case didn't obtain those notes. He did not even put the bare minimum of effort. No subpoena, no nothing. And later on, we'll hear the story of how you dug up all of these records. So let's get back to the initial proceedings. On October 29, 2001, you were indicted by a grand jury on two counts of child molestation. Class A oral sodomy, which at the time was the highest level felony short of murder, and Class C, which is fondling. You were arrested, then let out on a $5,000 bond, and a public defender, Brian May, was assigned to represent you at trial. Well, Judy and I, we tried getting a hold of Brian May to set up meetings so that I could get with him, you know, and 31 times I called him and never got an answer, never got a reply. Finally, I was allowed a visit with him, but I went in with all these notes, but everything that I had on my notes, he was just blowing it away. No, that don't matter. That, that doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. As far as I know, that's all that he had to go on in my case was, was my note. I only met with him, I believe, two times before the trial. And we should also mention that your lawyer from the custody dispute, Greg Blanford, had continually offered to help Brian May with these criminal charges. He was, of course, intimately acquainted with your case and well aware of Roberta's mindset. But apparently his offer was ignored. The trial started in January 2003 at St. Joseph County Superior Court. And again, Brian was being tried on two felony counts of sexual assault of his own son, who by now is six years old. So the state presented evidence from Linda Taylor, who was the second play therapist. They presented evidence from the mother, the Casey Center lady, but not the videos. The videos would have actually been helpful to Brian, I think. I don't believe his public defender ever even looked at the videos because I had to obtain those on my own. And the public defender, not only did he not investigate the case, he didn't cross-examine the witnesses. I believe Linda Taylor was not asked one single question on cross-examination, which just blows my mind. Yeah, this defense attorney, Brian May, he did no discovery. And now he's not cross-examining. Was he just unable to handle his caseload? Or was he like, maybe on the prosecution's payroll? I mean, was this guy doing anything at all to help you at trial? Well, my trial was a three-day trial, and he fell asleep sitting next to me during the trial three times. And one of the times, 
the judge called him out on it. He woke him up and told him, can we have you being attentive? That says pretty much everything that he did for me. Jesus. Okay, so you did get up there to defend yourself. How did that go? Brian may never ask me if I was even guilty or innocent. If your theory is innocence, which in this case, that was always the theory. Brian didn't do this. If you put your client on the stand under those circumstances, you absolutely have to ask them whether they did it or not. Because if you don't ask the question, then you're not only planting a red flag in the minds of the jurors, but you're also planting a red flag in the mind of the Court of Appeals if it ever gets to that phase, which of course it did, because the Court of Appeals may make the erroneous presumption in this case that the reason the attorney didn't ask the question is because the attorney may have known otherwise and didn't want to commit an ethical violation by eliciting perjury. So I had to pipe up and say, I didn't do this. You know, I love my son. I did not do this. To put this public defender in the same category of ineffective counsel that we've covered on this show would be unfair to your garden variety ineffective counsel. So there you were on your own against Roberta and the state with their almost unchecked power. They had child psychology professionals, an allegedly grieving mother, and the testimony of a six-year-old boy who'd been coached and coerced over the course of three years to repeat these horrific lies about his own father. I think whenever a charge like this is is brought before a jury, they're disgusted by the charge. And I think that they will err on the side of believing the child. I think had they been given the actual evidence that was available but wasn't used, and had the state's witnesses been exposed to not even vigorous, but just adequate cross-examination, I think it would have been a totally different outcome for Brian. But the outcome here was sadly predictable. So on January 15th, 2003, you were convicted of Class A child molestation and subsequently sentenced to 40 years in prison. And Brian, can you take us back to that horrible, horrible moment when they came back with the verdict? Oh, yeah. That's a moment you'd never forget. My then, Judy and I had gotten married. I heard Judy in the courtroom scream out. I mean, it's a numbing feeling that, you know, if you're guilty, you deserve it. If you're innocent, why the hell would you deserve something like that? Pacers Foundation is a proud supporter of this episode of Wrongful Conviction and of the Last Mile organization, which provides business and tech training to help incarcerated individuals successfully and permanently re-enter the workforce. The Pacers Foundation is committed to improving the lives of Hoosiers across Indiana, supporting organizations that are dedicated primarily to helping young people and students. For more information on the work of the Pacers Foundation or the Last Mile program, visit PacersFoundation.org or TheLastMile.org. All you know is you're supposed to grow up to be a a good man. You're supposed to have a good job and take care of your family. You know, you don't pay attention to the legal system. You don't have any need to really know it. You know, as long as you abide by the laws that you've been taught all your life. But you're also taught that, you know, prison's a bad place. Now you have to face this. Now you're going to something you have no idea about. 
I mean, not to get into this, but we all know how dangerous that place is for someone who's been convicted of what you were, you know, framed for. What happened when you first got to prison? I got put into what's called APOD, which is where the high profile and the sex charges go. Kind of like protective custody. I never went outside for, I think it was nine months. I had been a professional person all my life. Never had a, a reason to know what it's like behind the walls. But the Lord seen a, a purpose for me to be taken out of that life and put into the other one. And I believe he did have a purpose for me going there. You know, I was a, a, a part of the PLUS program. And PLUS stands for Purposeful Living Units Serve, and it's a terrific program, as I'm led to understand. It was really a wonderful thing. We won best prison program through the world. Many years, I was the clerk. You had to go to these classes. But me as the clerk, I processed all the papers and passed out people's graded papers, you know, stuck it under their doors, handed it to them, whatever. I got to be in the classes. I got to set up the PowerPoints for them. It's like I was the PLUS program. But meanwhile, all this time, you're working on appealing your conviction. Your first appeal was denied and the conviction was upheld. Then in 2004, still working on your own, I might add, you file a post-conviction petition for a new trial based on your claim of ineffective assistance of counsel that that got shot down too, right? Oh, yeah. You never get any kind of traction when you when you do it yourself, basically. And then public defenders, they just filed the paper and it got shot down. I mean, it's like a skeet shoot. But then... I believe your family had gotten the money together to hire an attorney. And in 2007, that's when you came onto the case, Cynthia, right? So when you first went and met with Brian at the prison and heard his story, what was your initial impression? Did you think he had a chance? It seemed like it was going to be a tough case to beat just because of the nature of the allegations. But Brian seemed sincere and his family was firmly in his corner and they they strongly believed in his innocence. I, I think by then... He and Judy were divorced, and she still believed in his innocence. It's been my experience in representing criminal defendants that when the exes will stand behind you, that's usually a pretty strong indication of character, because generally the ex-wives and the ex-girlfriends are the ones who know where all the dirty laundry is. And if they're still believing in this person, then that gives me a pretty good feeling that this is this is somebody I can I can help. And as I understand it, there was a very important person in your life who has since unfortunately passed away, but who really helped you a lot with this case. My mentor, Professor Henry Carlson, who was my criminal law and criminal procedure professor in law school. He read the transcripts. He said, your client is innocent. I can tell by reading the transcripts. The attorney did a terrible job. We need an expert witness. And I think you should contact Richard Lawler. And Richard Lawler was an attorney and also a trained psychologist who did agree to be your expert witness. So myself... Professor Carlson and Dr. Lawler made a determination that what was going to be important was to obtain the play therapy records. So I sent my subpoenas and nothing turned up from these subpoenas. They told me that we moved and these play therapy records got lost in the move. Sorry. So I did the best I could with what I had and we got the case worked up and ready to go to trial but you did end up getting those records eventually, and how you got them is really like a comedy of errors, all starting with a snowstorm. So the evidentiary hearing took place on December 10th, 2010, which I believe was a Friday. 
very snowy day in South Bend, Indiana. We went up the night before so we could serve the subpoena again. I sent my clerk. He goes to their office. And again, they say, we don't have these notes. We already told you we don't have them. So he's, go- he's going to leave and come back to the courthouse. And he's reaching in his pockets and he realizes he can't find the car keys. And he thinks that he's locked the car keys in the car. He also can't seem to find his cell phone. So he flags down a snowplow. And the snowplow flags down a police officer. So they're out there trying to slim jim the car to get into the car. And I think what happened is the people inside the play therapy place looked out the window and saw the police and thought that we were serving process on our subpoena. The young man that I had hired went back inside to see if he could use their phone. And lo and behold, they coughed up a stack of notes. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous (laughs) of your generation that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
take good care and we'll see you there. the day of your evidentiary hearing and everything's on the line now. You're going up in front of Judge Jerome Freeze and your expert witness, Dr. Richard Lawler, had just an hour or so to go over those play therapy records right before he got up to testify. And essentially what Dr. Lawler's testimony was able to illuminate is the concept of confabulation. The notes basically were the evidence that showed that the child was groomed to testify against Bryant. There was definitely some leading questions. The therapist would refer to Brian as Brian rather than the dad. And at the beginning of the testimony, when the prosecutor asked Michael, do you have a dad? I did, but now I don't. The therapist introduced the topic of secrets, the idea of giving the child a power badge to wear to help tell the truth. They also gave him a policeman ring to give him power. There was at one point, there was something about his mom was threatening to take his cat away if he didn't say what they wanted him to say. One of the handwritten notes said that Michael Scott is finally saying what we want him to say. And because no one obtained the notes prior to trial, there was no cross, there was no testimony whatsoever about this. I don't even know if the prosecution saw these notes. And while the therapist did get him to say what they wanted through this conditioning and what sounds like punitive measures, Michael Scott also said some things that didn't really track with the allegations. In fact, they didn't even make any sense. One of the things that the little boy said is that when he supposedly had this encounter with the oral sex, that it tasted like green jello. Obviously, not true. Another thing that we noticed was that when he drew a picture, which was supposedly a picture of the father's penis, the hair was on the shaft. Obviously untrue. But these are things that happen when there is a confabulation, when a story is planted in a child's mind. Eventually the child comes to believe that it's real, especially with a very young child, and they fill in details to supplement what they believe to be true. But the details are wrong. So you brought in this expert witness and all this powerful new evidence, along with a deposition from your mentor, Henry Carlson, all of which forms a very powerful argument for not only ineffective assistance of counsel, but also witness tampering and manipulation. And on top of that, you had one more witness who was going to be absolutely crucial to the case. The initial therapist that did the play therapy was Kathy Steinman. And the one other thing that was made clear to us whenever we did obtain the notes, is that somebody else had signed her name and put their initials after it, and she had moved to Michigan. She did not want to drive to South Bend to do the trial. She ended up testifying by telephone on December the 10th, 2010. Which was the day you concluded your case, but Judge Freeze didn't give you a ruling that day. He told you to come back a month later to make your closing arguments. And then, to your shock and devastation, Judge Freeze denied the post-conviction relief. But, I mean, he's here with us today, right now, right? So then what happened? Brian and I were actually going to appeal the decision and had actually, I think, even gone so far as to file the notice of appeal. But then the judge had second thoughts and had his staff call me and ask if I wanted to reopen the evidence because he said he didn't think it was quite fair that we had been given the notes in the middle of the trial 
And also it was difficult to hear the witness on the phone and it would be better if she could come in person. So we did that in February. Then the judge took it under advisement. Judge Freeze wrote his own findings and he did that in May. And that was in May of 2011, just a few months after denying your PCR request. Judge Freeze then issued his final ruling granting post-conviction relief and basically overturning your conviction. That must have been an unbelievable day for you, Brian. Well, it ain't like, okay, it's overturned and we open the doors and let you out. It don't work that way. I think I was in there for, it was either three weeks or a month, deemed an innocent man. Now, you don't tell nobody that when you're in prison because they'll do what's called jack your time. They'll cause problems with you so that you get in trouble and you don't get to leave on time. So here I am busting at the seams and only my closest friends in prison did I allow to know I'm getting out until the morning that they packed me out and I'm walking out and shaking hands with guys, telling them it's nice to meet you. I got my case overturned. I'm going home. So I get up there and finally get to go before the judge and, and he releases me. And one of the happiest days of my life, when you walk out of that prison, your depth, you don't realize how far you can see. And, and when you walk out a free man, everything, you're able to not ask the guard if I can, can I hug my mom? And now she's standing right there waiting for you, along with her posse. My mom grew up best friends with five other women. There were six of them that were all good friends. They were all there. They had a motel room and a banquet room set up so that we could have a coming out party. It was great. You eventually filed a federal civil rights suit against St. Joseph County, but the truth is there's nothing, there's no amount that could ever repay you for what you went through. No, put a price on your life for a year. You can't. There's no price. I mean, what are you going to do? Go back and, and say, well, his wages for the year was this, so that's the value of his life. And where I was, your life's in danger every day. So how, yeah, how do you put a price on that? Our listeners, is there anything that they can do to help or anything that you need? Well, the biggest thing that I could ask for is just prayer. You know, people want to say money, money, money. Well, somebody could lay a $100 bill in your hand and, you know, that's worth $100. But you can't even put a price on a prayer. And prayer is what got me through. There are so many people praying for me and nobody let God forget about Brian. So what are you doing now? Have you been able to pick up some of the pieces? I went back to being a diesel mechanic. I just try to enjoy every day. Uh, you you learn to appreciate walking outside and smelling the air. I even like flowers nowadays. I never never thought <clears throat> anything about colorful flowers, but you sure do appreciate them now. Uh, now we're going to turn to my favorite part of the show, which we call closing arguments. I'm just going to turn off my mic, kick back in my chair, and listen as you guys say whatever else you feel is left to be said. The floor is yours. So thank you again for being here. Cynthia, why don't you start us off and then Brian, you take us out. What I would say more so than anything is just how valuable 
the Constitution is in protecting people's freedoms. And if a person's constitutional rights have been violated and they don't get a fair trial, trial judges should not be afraid to overturn convictions. Prosecutors should not be afraid to revisit wrongful convictions because freedom is too precious and too valuable for someone to have to sit in prison for something that they didn't do. And in negotiating with prosecutors and pleading cases to judges, you know, sometimes the best thing that you can do is ask for mercy and grace. And even for people that are in prison for something they actually did, sometimes the sentences are too long. But for people to be in prison for something that they didn't do, that's just evil. Brian is a good example of this. And I just hope that, you know, for people out there that are doing this kind of work, that they don't lose heart and that judges who are presented with cases like this will have the courage to do the right thing. As strange as it sounds, I feel like I'm pretty blessed. The Lord showed me a lot and had me do a lot of what I think is good being there in prison with the PLUS program. It sounds crazy, but I, I feel like I'm a blessed man. I'm, I'm definitely blessed. I've finally proved my innocence, but I'll never know what it's like to have a son. So I hated it. He lives a life of lies, but I pray for him every day that God puts angels in his life to lead him and protect him. And the justice system ain't a justice system. It's about as fucked up as it comes. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. Special thanks to our amazing production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow on TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. That's It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.